Even though most of the reformers agreed on a lot of the big issues of the Reformation, there remained differences among the various factions. They had all thrown off the Pope and basically agreed the scriptures were a sufficient authority, and they agreed sinful humans were justified by faith in the crucified Christ. Still, as they dusted off those Bibles covered in a few centuries of dust, they came to some pretty different theological conclusions that continue to separate, for example, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists to this very day. To conclude our season on the Reformers, we're having a friendly dialogue between a Calvinist and a Methodist on issues covered in earlier episodes on whether perfection is possible. Thanks again for listening. I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor here at First Lutheran. I'm joined by Sarah Stone from Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. Hey, guys. And as always, check out HoustonTOT.com to stay in touch with what we're up to, our events, uh, podcasts, and all of that. Certainly subscribe to this. Tell your friends about it. We're, we're creating more seasonal content, uh, more researched content for our dear listeners so that they can walk away from this whole season with a lot more knowledge about what really went on in the Reformation, what the issues really at stake were, and just trying to understand history better and how we ended up uh, where we are and why we believe what we believe. But uh, to try to wrap up some of the main ideas of the Reformation and highlight some of the main differences between really two of the largest traditions to emerge from the Reformation, I'd say the two largest historically in America for sure, we wanted to have this little debate. And so joining us uh, is our guest from our episode on Calvinism, or uh, John Calvin, Pastor Aaron Wright from Grace Family Baptist Church. Uh, he'll argue more or less that when uh, Calvinists say total depravity, you know, they really mean it. <laughs> Uh, and a special guest, past panel member of a Theology on Tap event, Bishop Scott Jones, the Bishop of the Texas Annual Conference, who, uh, fortunately for us, offices right here in Houston. Uh, he'll speak to a topic that we did address in our episode with Pastor Meredith Mills on John Wesley, the idea that a Christian can, through the spiritual work of sanctification, become perfect. Um, so thank you guys both for joining us. I, I had you know, minimal bios. Um, Dr. Jones, uh, why don't you kind of go first, tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are uh, in this illustrious bishop seat and other bishop bishoprics, I guess you served, and you're, you're a professor at SMU for a while. Just give the, give the audience a little flavor for your background here. Well, Evan, thank you for inviting me, and I'm glad to be in this conversation with all of you. I'm a fourth-generation Methodist and United Methodist preacher. I came to SMU where I did master's and Ph.D. work. I was a pastor for 11 years, then a full-time professor at Perkins School of Theology, SMU, for uh, seven years. Then they elected me bishop, sent me to Kansas for 12 years, then to Houston, where I've been serving for six years. Years. I've written books on United Methodist Doctrine, on John Wesley's conception and use of Scripture, on the evangelistic love of God and neighbor. So uh, I've been a bishop and away from academia full-time for the last 18 years, but I'm retiring in three months, and uh, we'll see what God has in store for me in the future, Evan. A lot of podcast episodes, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Love all this free time. Uh, and Aaron. Yeah, my name's Aaron Wright. I am one of the pastors at Grace Family Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. We're right at I-45 in, in 1960. Um, I attended uh, Level College at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in New Orleans. I graduated with a bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. I've been serving as an elder at Grace Family Baptist Church since 2015. I came on uh, full-time in, in 2019. I have a uh, lovely wife, Janice, and uh, five children that we've been, we've been blessed with. Good deal. Well, glad you're both here. Um, so let's just kind of jump in. Um, so John Wesley, as we, as we heard, he was a, a fiery preacher. Uh, things like the altar call, uh, Meredith said, were kind of the uh, result of his preaching, the, the, the idea that uh, the Christian needed to not just have a formal relationship to the church, but a personal relationship mm -hmm. to Jesus Christ. His own heart w was uh, strangely warmed. warmed, I believe, yeah. listening to Luther's or reading Luther's commentary on the Romans. So basically, we get all the credit for all this. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, and, and he really preached amendment of life and pursuit of holiness in the life of the Christian. And I don't know, did that mean that we can end up you know, perfect. What what does that what does that kind of doctrine mean? But maybe if you want to give a little background on 
you know, getting us to that point with Wesley, feel free to do that too. Well, John Wesley was a priest of the Church of England, and he was again uh, the son of another priest of the Church of England, a grandson of dissenters, actually. Uh, but uh, when he went to Oxford, he encountered Bishop Jeremy Taylor's tradition of holy living and holy dying. Hmm. That helped him come to a deeper awareness of holiness. Then he has this spiritual crisis where he realizes, oh my gosh, uh, I can't achieve what God has commanded me to achieve. I can't be as holy as I need to be. Uh, then he runs into Moravians. Uh, they were some of the people who helped convey the Reformation to him. And he then opened up the doctrinal statements of the Church of England and reread them and realized, no, I'm saved by grace alone. Um, that led Wesley on a spiritual journey personally, that he then had his heartwarming experience at Aldersgate Street, uh, but also developing his theology into what I have characterized as the extreme center. Wesley holds in tension both justification by faith and sanctification by faith. And uh, he has strong things to say about how right Luther was on justification and how right the Catholics are about sanctification. Um, so that was his theological journey. And if there was a text that sort of helps realize how the New Testament itself occupies the extreme center, I'd point to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, mm -hmm. where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Hence the Lutheran emphasis of, you know, you can't earn your salvation. Uh, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. But then verse 10 for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Um, hence, you've got to say, we're not saved by good works, but we're created for good works. Um, hmm. Wesley justified this by interpreting Scripture in a particular way. He said, every commandment in Scripture is a covered or hidden promise. The proof text for this is Matthew 5.48, uh, where uh, the text uh, is pretty clear in saying, um, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that was a key thing for Wesley saying perfection is expected, it's possible, but Wesley knew his Greek well enough to know that the verb uh, in this text could either be interpreted as the present imperative, as it's normally translated, you must be perfect or be perfect. It's also in the Greek possible to read it as the future indicative, you will be perfect. And he regards that commandment as simultaneously a promise. So he thinks the law and the gospel are two sides of the same coin and that the promise that you will be able to fulfill the law is out there. That's good stuff. Yeah. Let's park on a couple of terms real fast and just justification, sanctification, uh, and maybe kind of define those a little bit and talk about uh, without, I'm not going to take away, I promise I'll give you all, all your time, but I think for the audience, um, maybe give a definition of each one of those words. Well, Wesley understands discipleship as the way of salvation, the way to the kingdom. This is God's expectation so that being converted, becoming a Christian is uh, just the beginning of a lifetime's journey of salvation. Justification, he describes as a relative change. It's a change in relationship, and so that the sinner is justified by faith alone and becomes accepted of God, reconciled to God, uh, welcomed into the family of Christ, and saved in that sense. Mm. At the same time, sanctification begins... It's a real change. In other words, God doesn't leave the sinner in 
that person sins, God begins a work by grace through faith to change the sinner's heart, mind, behavior to start on this journey of holiness so that the Christian life is really a journey to becoming more and more obedient to Christ, more and more uh, following the commandments, um, and sanctification Sanctus, holy, mm -hmm. becomes more and more holy. So Wesley called this doctrine scriptural holiness, and he said the reason Methodism was raised up was to reform the nation, especially the church, and to spread scriptural holiness across the lands. What, what, uh, I think some in the like Lutheran tradition, they 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 draw a sharp line between justification and sanctification. If you think of it on a person's timeline, justification is this, you know, strict one-time event in which a person is justified. Following that, there is a, a long process of sanctification. I think in the East and West, they refuse to make any distinction. Like in the East, I'm sorry, Eastern Orthodoxy, they, they don't make any distinction between, say, the process of being justified and sanctified. It's all kind of one big bundle. Where does Wesley kind of fall on that? You know, on the, on that, would would he regard justification as a as a point when you, one is converted, or does it happen at baptism, or is it hard to say, or is it a process? Well, we believe in infant baptism, and so Wesley tends to talk about uh, some sort of regeneration happening at the point of baptism, even for infants. Okay. But he says most people send it away. He has this image <laughs> that salvation is a house. Repentance is the porch, justification is the doorway, and sanctification is the rest of the house. Hmm. And so, if you're moving into the household of God, your time in the house is all about sanctification. Mm -hmm. And so, justification is, again, a moment, mm -hmm. uh, and you uh, move in through the doorway, but you live in the house. Okay. And last question, just to, for clarification. Meredith talked about perfection being a a hypothetical possibility. What what was Wesley's worldview on perfection in terms of it being a real possibility versus a hypothetical possibility? You know, like did did, did he believe that a person this side of heaven could become and could be declared morally perfect? And do we have a list of those people? <laughs> <laughs> Evan um let me be really clear that the definition of terms is pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> Wesley never believed somebody could be so perfect as not to commit any sins whatsoever. Okay. Perfection is defined as not violating intentionally a known law of God. So human beings are going to make mistakes. They're ignorant. Uh, unintentional things are going to happen, so that we're always sinners in some major sense. Mm. But he was also very optimistic about the opportunity that God could so work in your life that all of your intentional actions and thoughts and words are in obedience to the will of God. Um, so that if it's a known law of God and you're measuring it by intentions, you can get to that point. So that for him, it was a real possibility. However, following Jeremy Taylor's holy living and holy dying, he said, for most people, it happens in the moment of your death. That mm. as you're coming to God, dying, all of a sudden, you're cleansed in that way. Mm. Now, let's talk about the rest of Methodist history for a minute. In the 19th century, this entire sanctification movement then spread to some people in the Wesleyan movement, broadly speaking, who believed in instantaneous entire sanctification. Phoebe Palmer. Is that the Keswick thing? Keswick holiness? Some of the Keswick people are okay. that way. Um, I'm not as familiar with them, Sarah. But uh, to say the, the entire instantaneous sanctification, there are parts of Wesley's sermons where he talks about 
if God's powerful and you're willing, God can instantly completely sanctify you. Mm -hmm. And so some of the revivalist movements in the mid-1800s emphasized that entire sanctification piece. I'll give you an interesting story. I love Wesley's hymns, Charles Wesley's Mm -hmm. hymns. And in the hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, Charles wrote in the second stanza, uh, take away our power of sinning. Hmm. Now, his hymns were published by his older brother, John. Mm-hmm. George Whitfield, their friend from Oxford, objected to that language and convinced John to change it. So, in our Methodist hymnal today, it says, take away our bent to sinning. Hmm. Um, softened it a little sinning. bit, but that's that's what mm-hmm. Whitfield talked John yeah. into doing to his brother's hymn. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, Aaron, okay, come back, come back on that. What what might a Calvinist say to all this? Um, well, I'd say first off, there's there's a there's a great amount that um, uh, you know you said, Scott, that that I fully agree with, and I think the emphasis upon verse ten in Ephesians two is one that's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. And understanding that, you know, people like to talk about, well, I, I just got saved. When did you get saved? And not understanding <laughs> soteriology and the com- complete process of it. And understanding even, you know, God's intentional purpose and work in in sanctification. Um, there are some things that um, in regard to sanctification, and so I'm going to deal with some of it's going to be my understanding of perfectionism. So I may be interacting to a certain degree with things that um, you're not affirming right now or you haven't stated you hold to. Um, and so it's my, um, you know, best way of working with what I've read and what I understand uh, with my limited understanding of Wesleyan, Wesleyan theology. But there's things that I, I do find concerning um, about it. And I think the first thing I think that's really important to understand is a, you know, rightly understanding the moral law of God. And um, anytime that man begins to get into, um, you know, stratifying the moral law of God, creating different levels of, you know, um, significance in that, uh, I think we're walking on, on dangerous grounds. Uh, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, they were hoping he would pick one of the, one of the 10. Is he going to pick the, the fifth one? Is he going to pick the 10th one? And he instead gave them two. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, um, you know, that's the understanding there is that the, he's summarizing the moral law of God. That is the expectation. Anything that we do, that doesn't hit that is is sin. And so as a Reformed Baptist, how I approach something like this and understand it is going to be in the category of the fourfold state of man. And if you look in the, you know, the the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the second London Baptist Confession, in the ninth chapter, we have a chapter on free will, believe it or not. <laughs> Calvinists have a chapter in their confession on free will. And, you know, you could say, well, does man have free will? The question is, well, what do you mean by free? What do you mean by will? And so we understand that Adam in the garden was made innocent. He was made righteous. He was made perfect. He could sin. He could not sin. Adam fell and all of us fell in him. And all who came from Adam fell into sin. And so he then fell into humanity's in a state of of sin at that point. And so the work of God needs to happen upon the person. Regeneration needs to occur. And at that place, we're in a position where we can sin or, or we cannot sin. We have, we have the option of doing, doing either one. And glorification is what ultimately happens. Um, and you know, when I, when I hear, um, some of the perfectionist ideas coming forward, to me, it sounds like an over-realized eschatology and an over-realized um, soteriology. Can you define those words real quick? Sure. There might not be people listening that are Absolutely. like, I don't know what So, this, so um, this may happen a, a few times yeah. in this conversation. But so eschatology, that's our understanding of, of what is going to happen in the future. All right. And so just as an example, some word of faith teachers may tell you things like, well, you can be healed right now. You can live a life and never be sick. And usually there's mm-hmm. some things that you have to do to do that. And but so that's I would say that's an overrealized eschatology. We have a promise that we will never be sick in the future. In glory, we'll have a new body. 
Um, but, you know, part of that hope in the future is that we are going to be resurrected. We're going to be placed in the new Jerusalem. There's going to be a wall around to protect us. There will be no invasion from Satan as there was in the garden. And so we will no longer be living in sinful flesh. And so we mm-hmm. will not have, you know, the issues that we have now. And, and that's, that's my, that's my concern here is that I feel like it's an over-realized eschatology. And when we start talking about, when we start getting into the high theoretical ideas and we say things like, well, it's isn't it possible? Is it possible? There's a great many things that we could theoretically say are possible that aren't really helpful to us and could actually be a distraction from what we're doing. Like I could say, well, it's possible for, you know, to flip a quarter a million times in a row and it to land on heads a million times. Well, you could make that argument mathematically, philosophically. It's possible. That's not reality. That's not going to happen. And so that's not something that that we need to be um, doing something with. The other issue that I have is that there is, um, and I think I think we noticed that as as um, the introduction was given, is that there's a diminishment of the moral law of God. And so one of my other concerns is that this leads to antinomianism. You're um, definitely gonna have to define that one. That's fine. Okay. Uh, so so anti antinomianism, namos, the Greek word for law, just means without law. And so it doesn't literally so someone who's antinomian. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that you have no law of your own. Legalism and antinomianism, um, are kind of bedfellows. They, they, they very much, very much work, work together. And so there is going to be a diminishment of the moral law. And so there's going to be a statement that you're meeting the moral law in some way that does not actually meet it. Um, and so that leads to, man saying, this is the moral law of God. I get to determine what the moral law of God, I get to determine what keeping the moral law of God is. This is exactly what Jesus was dealing with the with the Pharisees. They were taking the moral law of God, they were lowering it to their own standard, and then declaring someone mm-hmm. to keep it. And so I know this is very much in a theoretical, you're not going to find anyone that says this guy was perfect. We're definitely not looking through the pages of scripture and pointing to any of them and saying, well, this one was perfect. That's one there was people. one guy. Yeah. Yes. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I am. I am orthodox. <laughs> He's kind of the exception here, Sarah. Yes. I know. Yes. I'm just giving yes. the Sunday school answer when yes. I okay. can. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one of the beauties of Christianity is that, you know, um, the grace of God is shown in the sinfulness of man. And, the, you know, the, the Bible doesn't whitewash the people. That are there, and even the heroes of the Bible that, that we make Veggie Tale stories about. Um, <laughs> you know, they needed the the grace of God as well, and so um, you know that, that's kind of my concern. There is is antinomianism, and this doesn't really help the Christian. This isn't how sanctification works. Sanctification is something that is continual. It's over time. Um, it is something where God is working and chipping away at you. And the reality is we don't even know many times the ways in which we are sinning. We have to be informed later on to even come to that understanding. And that even is part of the sanctification process. Yeah. I will say I have met people who claimed the ability to be perfect and even claimed perfection. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, they weren't. Like like for more than five minutes or – I mean, like I, when I do college outreach, I'll, I've, I've, I've had lunches and things like that. And like students would come and they're more from like charismatic. Now they're not, they weren't like, you know, members of the United Methodist Church that I'm aware of. It was more charismatic Pentecostal background, but they really believed that, you know, and in a way that I'm sure that Bishop Jones would highly object to. But, you know, they, they believed essentially that becoming Christian was, I think you'd kind of mentioned some of those other groups. There's kind of an immediate perfection. But, but that said, let me just clarify one thing and then, maybe have kind of a dialogue, um, is what you're saying that so long as perfection remains even a possibility that man is going to want to attain it, given that it's, on your view, unattainable, the only way to get there would be to to lower the law of God to his standard. You know, in other words, he's not going to be able to, you would say, anthropologically speaking, you know, be raised up to the level of God's holiness or perfection. So therefore, the only option is going to be an inevitable downgrade uh, of of God's law to an attainable level. So yeah, let, let me let me let me do my best to give the Reformed Baptist perspective on this. 
It is our view that when you become a Christian, justification happens immediately. That's a positional change legally between you and God. <laughs> sanctification happens immediately. Believe there is an immediate sanctification, an immediate change of that person. They've gone from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. We believe there is a progressive sanctification. And it is at that point when someone is a Christian and the Spirit of God is dwelling within them that that person has the ability to keep the moral law of God. So m- make sure I... I you understand that I am communicating that, mm-hmm. that, that prior to conversion, you have done nothing but sin the entirety of your life because you have not kept those two commandments that Jesus gave, mm-hmm. which are a summary of the moral law. Um, and when you become converted, that's the first time in your existence you are able to actually keep the moral law of God. So I'm not diminishing this and saying that man can't keep the law of God as a Christian. Absolutely. The Word of God and the Spirit of God work within you and change you. And, and you can keep the moral law of God. It's a whole other thing to then go on and say that someone is going to do that the entirety of their life when you understand the reality of their existence in sinful flesh, dealing with the old man and the existence of the world around them. So the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil are something that Christian are dealing with. And so, so I don't like to dwell into this. Well, it's possible theoretically mm-hmm. i mean there's a lot of things where we can get into dealing with well this might be possible no i i, I don't it's not realistic and mm-hmm. so i i don't so i i want to you know, understand i have a very high view of sanctification and that i believe that god changes a person whereby they they keep the moral law of god but to say that the person would do that the totality of their existence when they're still in the process of being sanctified i i think is is going to require to diminish the moral law of God in some way to lower it. Yeah. I, I have a question for each of you. I'm yes. going to save the one for Bishop Jones till a little bit later because sure. I think it'll distract from right now, but I'm curious. But uh, but for you, Aaron, yes. I'm curious how you respond to the Matthew passage that he sure. read. I've always I, I had a Mennonite yeah. one time say, yeah. why would Jesus t- command us to do something that we uh, couldn't do? Oh. So we're going back to the Augustine Pelagian controversy, right? Perhaps you tell right. me. Well, well where, where Augustine prayed that that God would would give him the ability to do what he commanded, and that was quite offensive to Pelagius. This idea that if God's commanding you to do something, you have the ability to do mm-hmm. it. And so, well, first we have to go back and understand what I already laid out in regard to the fourfold state of man that that. Adam had the ability to keep the law of God. These commands that come from God do not change because man became sinful. God is who God is. God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so man changed. God didn't change. God's commands remained. Right. And so man is the one who has fallen short of the glory of God. Man is the one who is not keeping that standard. Um, and so God is going to command that which you can't do, and it's not his fault that you can't do it. But we must recognize that, that, that you know, God showed his love to us while we were yet sinners, Christ mm-hmm. died. So God has made a way whereby all right, you can be saved, you can have a right relationship with him, and you can be obedient to these commandments. So you're saying this commandment is one that he gave. God doesn't change, but because of our state, we're not able to do this. Then why did Jesus ask us to do it? It seems like a waste of breath or just a way for us to feel crappy all the well, time because we're not ever going to. Okay, so so feeling crappy might be a good idea sometimes, right? <laughs> True. So, so let, let's let's be honest. Isn't that with the this. front if, door of the house? If you um, if you uh, that's yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get sound bitten on that one. Um, <laughs> this is live, but um, okay, so. It's not, it's not a bad thing that you would, you would mourn or feel bad over your sin. Um, that's one of the purposes of the law is to, you know, that's, that's our understanding as Reformed Baptists is that one of the purposes of the law that we have is to show your need of a savior. Sure. And so God is declaring that it's, it's kind of like, let's say you go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis and you have cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, does, it's not going to make you feel good that the doctor told you that you had cancer. Right. That's not the purpose of the doctor's declaration. That's not the purpose of, you know, him, 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 the prognosis there. The, the purpose of it is to make you aware of your problem. And the solution is not 
found in just wallowing in what you are not, but to recognize the free gift that God has given in Jesus Christ that you can access by grace and through faith. And so God, throughout the Bible, gives people commands. He tells the Israelites, be holy as I am holy. He tells us, be holy as I am holy. And so therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is unpacking the moral law of God. And so he's teaching here that you should love your neighbor um, as yourself. He's teaching here, he's unpacking, honestly, the sixth commandment, the positive understanding, don't murder. Well, then I should be loving of other people. I should be a protector of life. Mm -hmm. And so I should treat people the way that I want to be treated. What's my problem? I don't do that. I don't keep the law of God. I don't rightly love other people. What happens is that I'm falling short here. God hasn't changed. He still has this commandment. The good news here is that Jesus has done this. Jesus kept the moral law in every respect in his active obedience, and we are granted the benefits of what he has done by grace and through faith. I want to make sure Dr. Jensen come in, because I want to make sure we're not... I am not trying to. No, no. To, to, I'm asking asked no, 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 just because I don't want him being painted as an antinomian if, in fact, he is not an antinomian. I do want to be clear <laughs> on that, that I'm not accusing um, him. I'm not accusing yeah, yeah. you of any of that. I'm trying to interact with this the best the the best that I can. And so I may not only be interacting with the things that you say. Yeah. So. Sure. Well, actually, Wesley is deeply concerned with antinomianism and wants to say the law is established by faith. We have got to take the moral law seriously, uphold it. That's what holiness is all about, is to increase obedience to the law. I think, Aaron, if I were to critique the the dangers of a Wesleyan position, uh, the biggest danger is works righteousness, that instead of mm-hmm. focusing on grace, doing this work in us, that we tend to think it's all by human striving. Uh, that's why I call attention to that Ephesians 2 mm-hmm. section. Uh, faith, there is a human part of co-creating, cooperating with God's grace. God doesn't force us to become holy. God offers us the power to become holy by grace. And yet, sometimes we human beings, and I think it may be an especially American phenomenon, we tend to say, look at what I've done. Look at how good I am. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the, the dangers of antinomianism and works righteousness are both sort of rocks that you got to sail your ship through in between. And and that's not easy, to be clear. I mean, like the uh, distinguishing between law and gospel, these are difficult things to do. And every, I think, preacher should be should be challenged, you know, with the 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 notion that we're telling Christians pursue holiness. And yet at the same time, you, you know. Well, Evan, let's let's sort of come back at the Lutherans in this deal. <laughs> uh, you know, I think Luther was working in a context where works righteousness and earning your salvation was endemic to the funding of St. Uh, Peter's yeah. Cathedral, yeah. and you you've got this overreaction on the part of Luther to say, simul justus et peccator, uh, you know, and you downplay sanctification, so Wesley thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to guard in your theology what are the biggest heresies that are working in the culture today and the biggest threats to the proclamation of a holistic gospel that is, you know, Luther at his best and Wesley at his best. Yeah. I so And com- Calvin at his best. Aaron, I have to say, Wesley said Methodist doctrine is a hair's breadth away from Calvinism. So most of what you said I completely agree with. Yeah. Um, yeah, and coming from like a liberal denomination where the gospel became, uh, in fact, it's one of my pet peeves. We say the word gospel, and that can mean different things to different people. The way that you mm-hmm. just used it is the totality of the message of Christ, you know, sort of law and gospel or the whole counsel of God. But it's often used as it's just the good news. And the only thing the church is ever about in our modern age is just this good news. This, this, we've taken the, the necessary corrective of 15, 30 or whatever, 1517 of justification by grace. And then um, now everything is just grace. So basically it's all permissiveness. So I, I think we all would agree that the law of God says 
No. Well, actually, Evan, I'm currently writing a book on grace because Methodists today, United Methodists, tend not to talk about convincing grace, mm. hmm. the kind of grace that convinces you of your sin, that in fact, like the diagnosis that Aaron just mentioned, you know, part of God's grace is telling you, you've got issues and you've fallen short and you need a savior. Yeah. Sounds irresistible. Wink. So, what, was there anything in what Aaron said that you would take issue with in terms of, I don't know, either man's capacity or, um, you know, or, or, or a downgrade of, of the moral law of God or, or anything like that? I mean, do you, you know, well, he was naming dangers that are very real. I mean, people do downgrade the moral law of God. They don't really want to be, uh, uh, they don't want to read the Sermon on the Mount and take it seriously. Uh, and so, those that's all accurate. I tend to say that I would talk more of an optimistic approach of what God can do in people's lives and that some sort of growth is possible. Going back to that Matthew 5.48 text, the word perfect here is teloi, uh, which really is translated in <laughs> Philippians and other places as mature. So lately I've been preaching all over my area, and uh, one of the ways I start my sermon is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm not talking career, I'm talking what kind of person mm -hmm. do you want to have become? What's the, the goal of the Christian life? Mm -hmm. And that's where describing the moral law of God or mm -hmm. the nine fruit of the Spirit or other characteristics uh, becomes a vehicle for portraying to the Christian, here's a life goal that God can work in you if you'll just use God's grace to get there. Hmm. I like that. Aaron, was there anything that he said in his opening remarks that you, uh, you know, kind of would, would want to address directly maybe? Yeah. Um, well, um, something does come to mind with, with, with what he just said here, and it does tie into the opening remarks. Um, I, I do feel that um, the Calvinistic position is is kind of being communicated as something that is more pessimistic. Like if only we were more optimistic and we were just saying, well, God, God could do this. There's no real question in my mind of what God can do. God can turn rocks into his children if he wants to. He can. He's so omnipotent that that which exists not you know, responds to his beck and call. He commands light to come into existence. Mm -hmm. It's obedient to him, though it's not even in existence. So, so I have no question in regard to, to, to what God can do, what God has the ability to do. There's no question there. My, my, I, I'm pushing more on the issue of how sanctification actually works. And within any decent Reformed church, you're going to have a continual pressing of people to apply that which is being proclaimed and to, to understand that we, one of the uses of the law, going back to, you know, you know, an understanding of the uses of the law. We have three uses of the law that we understand as reformed people. And so one of them is as a way in which the Christian should live. And so we understand God has given these laws to us not to make our lives boring, not to make our lives difficult, but because this is the best way in which uh, we should live. This is the way in which he's, he's commanded us to live. And so, I mean, that's, that's absolutely something that, um, we hold to as, as Reformed Baptists is, is that God's called us to live this way. We should li live this way. Um, the fact that I'm not interacting with, uh, the perfectionist notion doesn't diminish at all the chasm that exists between where we were, like Lazarus, dead in his tomb decomposing and where he is now alive and walking around at a party with his friends. <laughs> and that's the picture of us as Christians. Like, like you can look at, like you could say, Oh, but we're not going to be perfect. Well, you will be perfect one day. Mm -hmm. That is a promise. Absolutely. But you can look at where you were dead in your trespasses and sins, a child of the devil. And here you are adopted into the kingdom of God, a child of God. Um, and the aspect that I'd want to interact with, with in far as antinomianism is that my perspective is that what you did say was antinomian. 
And um, because you began to talk about someone who could keep the moral law of God and only talking about what they intentionally did, um, that's not that's not keeping the law of God. That's not perfection. That's mm-hmm. a long shot from perfection because it's not taking into account, first off, all the ignorance that you have. because Which you mentioned, yeah. Yeah, because the reality is... Um, you know, that there's ways in which we're sinning that we don't realize. And part of the sanctification process is our mind being renewed and us coming to a, a, a richer and greater understanding of the moral law of God, which, by the way, is what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He was unpacking the moral law of God. Men had their understanding of what it was, and he was communicating to them that God is looking at the very heart. And so there's ways in which we're sinning. I mean, even on the theoretical idea that someone could do this and meet this standard, this is man's standard. Um, it's still hmm. sin. So, so even this, this theoretical idea of someone that could come to a place where they're no longer committing any willful sins, um, again, we're still kind of in this theoretical idea. We're not in reality. Um, I don't know anyone that's, well, you've met some people that stand before you and say that, that, that they've reached that, but I haven't met anyone. And I doubt someone like that would want to stand in, stand in, and, and, and do a debate on something like that. But the reality is that is so far below what God requires that you, you couldn't call it perfection because it's not meeting God's law. Um, you look at Nadab and Abihu, um, you look at the man who, who touched the ark as it was falling off of the cart. He intended well. All of our good intentions are ir- irrelevant in that point. Um, he intended, he, he meant well by keeping the ark from falling into the mud, but the fact is that he violated the law of God, and he was judged at that point for violating the law of God, not for his best intentions. Okay, come back to that, because that was a you mentioned that mm-hmm. earlier in this, when Wesley talked about perfection, he talked about a person, kind of their outward works being, all being as they should be, I guess, all being appropriate, all being lawful. And that was... Uh, no, Wesley said perfection does not include all of one's mm-hmm. outward works being uh, lawful because oh. of ignorance, uh unintentional consequences. And in fact, you know, given the 21st century, we live in social situations where I am participating in the destruction of the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have any options to care for Mm -hmm. God's creation without being sinful in that way. Uh, And so when you look at social sins, um, I'm guilty of some things that I don't have any way of not hmm. doing. Um, and so there are exceptions. Nevertheless, when we talk about cleansing our hearts so that all of our intentions and behaviors outwardly that are intentional, we're not engaging in willful sin. And that's the kind of cleansing that I think is possible and worthy of talking about. Mm-hmm. So would you say this distinction between like willful sin and it's, it seems like the, the distinction or the divide is a little bit between this, this concept that, well, we commit willful sins where we think about a sin and when we set mm-hmm. about to do it. Mm-hmm. But then there's like this nature of sin, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that is so deep and profound that you really can't make a distinction between those things. So it's almost like saying, well, basically you're okay unless you commit a willful sin, but the Calvinist is more saying, I guess because they're pessimists. No, I kid. I kid. <laughs> I know that's not accurate. But – you know, it's it's like no, no. There's not even a you you can't even find a a. a, a but if, let me let yeah. me just interrupt and say when you said well you're okay, isn't that what justification's all about? You are mm-hmm. okay. You're an adopted son or daughter of God. You're okay. We're talking about how how far is it possible that God could bring mm-hmm. you. My question would be maybe a little bit more practical because we keep using the word sanctification. So I'm, I wonder if you guys would even define that differently and, and or how does it work? I mean, in my understanding, sanctification is just the process of being made more holy. But, but how does that work? Or is it making yeah. better choices? Is it showing more fruit and who's doing that? Is that God? Is that you? I know you would say it's a participation and you probably would too, but maybe just explaining how sanctification works from your perspective might be helpful. I'll give you an example. Okay. 
my daughter was 12 years old. Yeah. She had done something that deserved correction. But because I was uh, dealing with a really p- tough couple of weeks, I blew up at her. Hmm. She stepped back in fear because I was out of control. Hmm. I was yelling. I was ranting. I was raging. I was angry. Hmm. And I realized when she stepped back afraid of her father, Hmm. Scott, you've got a problem. That violates one of the fruit of the Spirit. I was not patient. I was not kind. Um, I was in a small group for accountability, and I confessed my sin to my colleagues. And over the years, God has worked on me, and I'm a much more patient and kind person now than I used to be. So that that part of my spiritual life, God has changed my heart. I'm better than I used to be in any objective analysis. Uh, Now, I've still got other issues, but on the patient side. Why don't you list them out for our listeners, you know? (laughs) But on the patient side of things, uh, that's part of what I've prayed for over the years. God, heal my heart, help me. Uh, be more patient. And just to dig in a little bit, because I mean, and maybe I'm getting too practical, but after you confessed to your accountability group and you were praying for that, I'm sure then there were moments where you had little miniature choices to make, right? It, you know, you feel something start to flare up and you, because the Holy Spirit is empowering you, you can kind of say no to your fleshly desire maybe to blow up again, right? I mean, there are little choices along the way as you're being perfected by God. You know, When Paul in Philippians 2 says, work out your own salvation Mm -hmm. because God is at work in you, I think that what part of what God is doing through the Holy Spirit is restoring to us the capacity to say yes to God's grace Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis, that in fact, we make progress in the Christian life because God's grace is empowering us, and we allow God to shape that. And some of those are nudges where, you know, God pushes us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Yeah. Um, and sometimes God sends us people. One of the stories I tell is the time I was waiting to go into the sanctuary when I was a professor, and this saintly woman in front of me named Sue said, what are you doing Wednesday night? I said, why do you ask? She said, well, our food pantry needs staff Wednesday night. I wondered if you were free. I would much prefer to have written her a check. Yeah. (laughs) But instead, she asked me for my time. And because I admired her, because we were in the same church together, because I'd read Matthew 25 about feeding the hungry, I said yes. Yeah. And that's the kind of, okay, God's at work sanctifying me and giving me an opportunity Right in front of me. Yeah. And I did. I'm curious your answer to to the question of what is sanctification? How does it work? How does sanctification work? Okay. Um, so I've already made a distinction between two types of sanctification, immediate. And, and so you have many passages that talk about immediate and you have a progressive sanctification. When well. you say immediate sanctification, yeah. are you saying the same thing that we're using in the word justification? Mm. What is immediate sanctification? Sure. Um, So justification is a changing of your legal standing with God. And so God no longer is seeing you in your sin. He's seeing you through the righteous uh, lens of Christ Jesus. So from a legal – Romans 5, you know, Mm -hmm. that from a legal standpoint, that is where uh, the Lord is seeing you. He's not holding your sin against you. That said, you you are still someone who needs to be sanctified. Immediate sanctification happens in that you're regenerated, and there's an immediate change that happens in you. So justification is your legal standing. Sanctification is talking about um, where you actually are as a person. And so there was there's a great difference between someone who is. It it can be different for different people. I have a 12 year old daughter that that was baptized recently, and so you know as I talked to her and walked through her conversion and talked about her testimony you know she doesn't have this you know testimony like she was in a biker gang and selling drugs yeah, and yeah. all of that but <laughs> that but the, you know of the, i'm joking the, right um, but but the reality is is that others may have something more you know, that more drastic and so sure. others it's going to be more clear but that immediate thing would be something that was very clear the guy says 
I need to stop being in the spiker gang and selling drugs. And he turns away from that. And so you have this kind of immediate, well, there's a, that, that, that man may still have, does have other things that, you know, need to be changed in his life. Right. And, uh, that's the progressive aspect of it. So how does progressive sanctification happen? That's your question. Yes. Okay. So we would understand this as working through, um, the word and the spirit and through ordinary means of grace. And so the Lord is working within his people through ordinary means of grace as they're gathering on the Lord's day, sitting under the preaching, reading the word, praying, participating in the Lord's Supper, even baptism. We're understanding these ideas as, as, as molding, changing the people as they are there. Um, additionally, um, you know, Christians edifying one another, being in one another's life, the work of the spirit, and even just life situations the lord is is doing that's why and i'm glad you, you're not in the perfectionist camp that is like this if you just had this right belief right now then it would all just be here because that's almost like how some of the word faith will fall into in their over-realized eschatology of you know you just be healed right now if you just believe this right well this is kind of in soteriology you just be sanctified if you just believe this right here and the reality of how this works out is in time in your life. And the truth is, it's, it's, it's not a simple thing. The Lord is, is working with you in times of stress, difficulty, pain, disappointment, um, you know, and, and all of these things that the Lord is using. That's the promise we have, uh, that even these difficult, painful things, terrible things, God will use those for our good. And one of the good things that comes out of um, the pressure of life and difficulty that is here is the Lord sanctifying us and working in us in those circumstances and in those situations that we would be changed during those times. I mean, you see that with with Peter, the man at one point. I, I talked about this in my sermon last Sunday that, you know, the, the Lord had, had worked in his life. And you see Peter being changed and sanctified. And you see Peter at one point denying Christ outside mm-hmm. the court. You see him then inside the court proclaiming Christ mm-hmm. quite boldly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, that is that is a, a, a snippet of how sanctification happens. Um, was Wesley's message, I mean, to kind of tie it back to the historical era, you know, and what he was encountering as he preached and what maybe frustrated him in the life of the church, did he see a need for the church to be, you know, simply bolder in calling Christians to live like Christians, you know, and that's why he, you know, speaks about this particular doctrine or he calls for holiness of living is because what was he finding out there? What, what was he finding among people who profess Christ? I think there were two things that he found. One were people who were antinomian, who were living in ways that violated God's laws and never even acknowledged that they were falling short. Uh, and secondly, there were people who were focused on too much of uh, the law and not grace and didn't really understand how the sinner's uh, submission to God's grace was essential that they had to be born again, that they had to experience this. Um, and so it was both sides of this tension that I talked about as the extreme center where, you know, people were not really living the whole gospel at that point. Um, and quite frankly, the Church of England was not adapting to the population moves of the early Industrial Revolution. And so you had all these people who were outside of the church completely. And so part of what he did was to start preaching out in the fields Mm -hmm. to uh, reach people who were living on the edges of town when the Church of England wasn't starting new Mm -hmm. congregations. Yeah. I mean, I will say I do want to find some points of commonality and maybe tie a thread of this whole series together, which is that, you know, all of these reformers are, I think, trying to bring about a living and active and true faith in Jesus Christ. And to do that, they have to pull people out of this institutional safety, you know, Mm -hmm. because people had just been part of the church and they really hadn't been taught very much and sermons for hundreds of years were little ditties that really didn't teach much other than about Roman Catholic saints or something like that. And all of these men are kind of saying, no, this is what actually being a Christian looks like. And it was opening the eyes of people and it took a long time to get there, you know? So I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. 
And actually, I hear a lot of agreement with y'all. I mean, I don't think either one of y'all actually thinks little of the law of God, quite the contrary. Um, and I mean, to one one question for Aaron might be something sure. like, you know, if if perfection isn't our goal, you know, or if perfection isn't our standard, you know, mm-hmm. what what's what other standard do we have to appeal to? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, are we basically, you know, should we say, well, you know, at what aim at what, for a seven out of ten? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm picking on you a little right, bit. Yeah, but, you know. it's it's not about me. Um, yeah. I'm setting a standard. God set the standards, so yeah. the standards ten out of ten. Um, perfection is is the requirement. Um, but we recognize as Christians, we are not making that mark. We needed the um, active righteousness of Jesus to grant us eternal life. Um, and you know, if it was possible for us to keep the moral law completely, then Jesus's active righteousness wouldn't have been necessary. And so there is a reminder for us there that we need the grace of God um, and we need his active righteousness and the fruit that that bore in our lives. Um, but it's not about me just theoretically saying, yeah, but I could do this. Um, the reality of my, my day in my life is to exist in my family and with my congregation and with other people. And the reality is that God is sanctifying me there to bring to mind the various ways in which I am falling short of the law of God, bringing to mind things that I didn't even realize and causing me, calling me to repent of those things. And but that's, so that's that you Christian can pursue life. holiness. But, but that's what that is. That's what sanctification. I mean, that when I'm talking about the law of God, we're talking about holiness. Right. That's, that's the righteous standard. And so it's not a ho hum. I'll never make it. It's a, it's a, cause I mean, if I were to say something like, well, if perfection is impossible, what's the point? Like that would be very ungrateful of, for me to, you know, to look at the greatness of the grace that God has given to me and the blessings that have been given there for me to consider where I was in, you know, in, in the deadness of my sin and where I am now. Um, I mean, sanctification is the pursuit of holiness. Um, and I mean, if you're reformed, that should be something that, that that's being communicated is that you are, you know, that is one of the ways in which the law of God is used. It is the way in which Christians should be living. You are to pursue holiness. That That's, that's exactly mm-hmm. what you're commanded to do. And you have that ability because of what Christ yeah. has done on your behalf. Yeah. But go ahead. Well, so is the concern then it, it's so we we all we all agree we should be pursuing holiness, which yes. is essentially pursuing perfection because God is perfectly good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is the concern then that a person might essentially place themselves before Christ, in front of Christ, in in being the vehicle, you okay. know, able by mm-hmm. which to attain perfection. Sure. So the reformed are saying Christ gives you perfection. Yeah. Your concern is then that if other people, Wesleyans or, or, or Charismatics or anyone else in very different ways, if they say that perfection is possible, they could be actually subverting the work of Christ or getting in front of their work. We know that, you know, that's no. not what's being said here, but, you know, is that would that be the concern? So, sometimes, you know, the, the deficiencies in a particular theology don't manifest themselves in the current generation, but manifest themselves in generations to come forward. And so if we're telling people that they re- they can reach a state of perfection, and in that we're communicating a diminished view of the law of God that is not the law of God at all, you're telling people that you can actually do this. So yes, I do think that someone in the future could come to an understanding and could actually believe that they are actually reaching the law of God and thereby attaining that righteous standing themselves and would not be in need of of the active righteousness of Jesus. I, I do think that that's a possibility. Um, and so that's an area where this could tiptoe near a heresy and you end up right back into Roman Catholic theology, right mm. back into the idea where this is me and I'm doing this and now we're conflating justification and sanctification. Well, that actually segues into the question that I said I had earlier for Bishop Jones. And mm-hmm. I hope we can tag this on and it doesn't get us too far afield from the question, but I love the analogy of the house. Remember what the patio is, the front porch? Repentance. Well, repentance was the front door, I thought. You walk through repentance. No, repentance is the porch. Justification, Justification is the front door. Is okay. the door. And then the house is, is sanctification. And um, so my question for you is, can someone walk out of the house and walk away from sanctification? And can they walk away from 
being justified. Ah, now we're I know. into, uh, you know, once saved, always saved kind of I promise not to say they're stuff. very long, but I this is maybe my biggest sort of like beef with uh, with Wesleyan theology, or maybe it's just fear, right? I'm like, please don't let me walk out of the house, you know? Well, I, pers- I see sanctification as a lifelong process. We are never free from sin. Sure. Because of mistakes and temptations and uh, unintended consequences, all those things. We're always sinners in some absolute sense of falling short of God's will for our life. Right. But also, it's possible to make the choices that leave you to go out of the house. You make shipwreck of the faith, as Paul says, Hmm. and you find yourself saying, you know, I once knew Christ and I'm just through with that life. Uh, and so, yes, I think you can walk back out the door and lose your salvation. Hmm. Well, let's end on that note. It's nice and cheery. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> well, was there anything that Aaron said? We called you, this guy a pessimist, but that, you know. <laughs> was there anything that Aaron said that you wanted to respond to in terms of, um, you know, I mean, I know that you would not say, that man is in any way competing with Christ for his salvation. So if, 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 if I said anything that hinted at that, well, we know that's not the case. There are people who, I mean, I would argue that Roman Catholicism technically does make that case. Uh, but maybe that's a whole other can of worms. But um, is the Methodist position simply that a Christian ought to live as holy as he possibly can? Well, yes, by grace through faith, that in fact, what God's doing is convincing you of your sin, calling you into justification, and then sanctifying you by the means of grace over the rest of your life. And the goal is holiness, to be as holy as you possibly can be, Um, so that holiness is a life goal to... Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, and care for the poor, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I think what I resonate with in what Aaron said is, you know, we, we live in a day and time when people want to either diminish the law of God by not paying attention to all the commandments, or the moral commandments, that is, or... They want the kind of cheap grace. Mm -hmm. One of my friends had a father who was a doctor, uh, started an affair with his nurse, uh, left his wife and family, and said, well, that's okay. I can get forgiveness from God. Mm. You sort of justify your willful disobedience with a kind of cheap grace that's not really the gospel. Yeah. I mean, I do think we live in a in an interesting era that is so far removed from Luther and Wesley and Calvin in the sense that they all did have such a high regard for the mm-hmm. law of God. But even even our fight in, among Christians, even among self-proclaimed Christians in all of our church bodies is mm-hmm. maybe the Reformed Baptists have avoided, but the Lutherans and the Methodists <laughs> haven't and the Presbyterians. Um, it's just such monumental differences in understanding the moral law of God. So... Um, I think, Evan, the other part of following the law of God is how do you apply it given our understanding of the complexities of society today? You know, uh, is it immoral for a Christian to own a gas-guzzling SUV Hmm. uh, given what's going on with the environment? Uh, What's our complicity with racism and the uh, heritage of slavery in uh, America uh, what about British and colonial powers in Africa? I mean, you know, you're mm-hmm. you're caught up in social systems that make God angry, uh, and contribute to human uh, degradation. And so, how do you apply? I mean, it's the old uh, alcohol issue for Methodists, you know. Uh, is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Mm. Uh, we still use grape juice for our <laughs> communion services. Uh, I tell them it's unfermented wine, and Mr. Welch was a Methodist <laughs> preacher who invented mm-hmm. grape juice to keep us away from alcohol. Uh, you know, so um, hmm. how you apply the moral law of God to different circumstances is a is a part of the difficulty in our churches that you're referring to. No, it, 
100%. It is difficult. And it, it's one of the things I find most difficult about preaching is, you know, applying the law and doing so rightly without becoming a legalist, you know, so, mm. but we're just about out of time. I know, mm. uh, both of our, our gentlemen here have, have, uh, other appointments today. Either one of y'all have any kind of closing thoughts or anything we, you know, that wasn't said as we wrap up here or did you get it all out? No mic drop moments, <laughs> you know? No, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to come to speak and, um, you know, just to, uh, you know, to, to walk through this and talk through this and appreciate uh, everyone's time and this opportunity. I'm glad to learn more about the Reformed Baptist approach and the confession of faith you mentioned from the uh, 17th century. I need to go read. I need to pay up, uh, pay some attention to it. Yeah, the, the, the combination of the Reformed and the Baptist is uh, is interesting. But I knew he'd be a strong five-point Calvinist, so, you know, represent <laughs> I, the, I've the, got a copy of it here. You can have it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Wow, look at that. <laughs> That's an evangelistic move, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll be a 1689er before you know it. Watch out. You know, you're, 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 you're going to enter your cage stage of Calvinism by early next, next time year. he comes out the podcast, he'll be like, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. arguing for reformed theology. Yeah, <laughs> a bishop in a cage stage with a thousand churches under him—that would be uh, man. That would that be, would be quite a cage. Boy, that stage. would be trouble. That would be trouble. But uh, well, uh, uh, Aaron, people can find you at Grace Family Baptist Church up on the north side of Houston. Website: uh, www.gracefamilybaptist.net. Cool, good deal. And uh, well, I by the time this airs, it'll be into December, so you'll be very close to retirement. I'm sure having retirement parties thrown and everything already so i'm not sure where people find you uh extremecenter.org oh okay oh, perfect very cool but to, to tie everything back together yeah. in your opening remarks extremecenter.org is that your website yes personal excellent. website oh excellent oh, very okay cool. well, very i wrote about. the book united methodist doctrine with the subtitle extreme center oh okay so cool. it's been my tag for a while good deal well glad we got that out uh you can find sarah on facebook sarah garment stone and at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church and at HoustonTOT.com. Mm -hmm. All of the bios for all the leaders, including where we stand on some of this kind of stuff, is on the leadership page of HoustonTOT.com, including pictures. And so you can learn a little bit more about us if you want to haze us or come and fight against what we believe or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, good deal. And I'm Evan McClanahan at First Lutheran here in Midtown Houston, FLHouston.org. Check us out. But uh, we want to thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to this whole series. Mm -hmm. And until next time, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.